Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors episode 136. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. November's prize is a fabulous Tudor-themed book pack, consisting of the Mary Queen of Scots Book of Days, and the Queen Elizabeth I Book of Days. Informative and beautifully produced, these books pair a practical perpetual diary with factual information. A huge thank you to Tudor Times for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of December, I'll be chatting to Tracy Borman about her new book, Crown and Scepter, and much more. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Thomas Cromwell and Austin Friars is Dr. Nick Holder. Dr. Holder is an historian and archaeologist specialising in the study of urban landscape. Having worked as an archaeologist at Museum of London Archaeology, he studied for a PhD at Royal Holloway and then worked for several years as a senior lecturer in English history at Regents University London. He's a senior properties historian at English Heritage and an honorary research fellow at the University of Exeter. He has written about medieval and Tudor London, and his research interests include medieval religion, the dissolution of the monasteries, mapping, and architectural history. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
Welcome to Talking Tudors. Nick, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Natalie, for inviting me. Yes, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time now. So, Nick, I suppose a good place to begin is just you introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Oh, hi. Uh, well, I'm Nick Holder. I'm a historian at English Heritage here in England. Uh, I'm also at the University of Exeter. And, well, I guess I'm interested in urban history, monasteries, Tudor stuff. Maybe that's why I'm here today. <laughs> Church history. Um, I used to be an archaeologist, actually. I worked for the Museum of London about 15 years ago as an archaeologist. And then I just found I was sort of drifting away from trowels and mattocks and shovels and things and getting more into, you know, archives and bits of old parchment. And so I've kind of drifted. I move between archaeology and history nowadays. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun, I must say. And yes, we are here to talk about something Tudor, of course. And that is a house by the name of at Austin Friars that Cromwell owned. So can you tell us about the appearance, maybe the layout and location of this house that I believe he rented Cromwell at Austin Friars? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, let's picture the scene. It's about 1523. We've got a up-and-coming freelance businessman, property consultant lawyer, maybe we'll call him, Thomas Cromwell. In 1523, he's, you know, he's an important businessman freelancer, but he's not yet famous in England. So at this point, he's doing business deals, he's working for other clients, um, he's working for perhaps minor aristocrats like Thomas Gray, Marquis of Dorset, and he's a sort of business fixer. A little bit later in the 1520s, he becomes... Uh, he works for Cardinal Wolsey, Thomas Wolsey, and that's when Cromwell starts to get more famous. So he's got a London base. He's probably there by about 1523. He rents a house from the prior of Austin Friars. Austin Friars is one of those sort of urban London monasteries, and they have the live-in monks or friars, but they also have a little row of shops and houses on the street frontage and Cromwell rents a rather nice townhouse pays about four pounds a year you know quite a lot of money four pounds a year rent and it's a pretty handy place it's a probably a three-story house right opposite the church he can see the friars and you know Londoners coming and going from the church uh, it's got about three stories 14 or 15 rooms few separate wings, got a nice separate kitchen, got a hall at the back, courtyard, all mod cons, you know, lavatory facilities of a latrine, it's got wood and coal sheds. It's a pretty reasonable, pretty decent townhouse and a good London base for this up and coming businessman. Yes, it sounds like he was already doing quite well for himself at that point, at that early point. So who's he living there with? Well, he's married at this time. So he's uh, living with his wife, Elizabeth. And in the 1520s, his family is growing. He's got his wife, he has uh, two daughters during the 1520s, Anne and Grace. They're, they're both dead, along with their mother, by the end of the decade, sadly, by the uh, late 1520s. He's, they've also got a son called Gregory, and Gregory survives and grows into adulthood. So he's got this developing family. The mother-in-law probably moves in with him, uh, Mercy, his, his wife's mother. Then one of the cousins arrives, uh, John Williamson. And Cromwell seems to 
he seemed to sort of thrive on these on this extended family contacts. He really gets on with his in-laws. He's not got a great relationship with his uh, his own family and his own father, um, but he likes his his new family, his in-laws' family. And gradually, he takes on more family members as sort of friends, colleagues, servants, and he starts to take on new servants. Some of these are the kind of, you might call them the ordinary servants doing the, you know, the cooking, the sweeping, the cleaning. But he also increasingly has uh, sort of trusted business associate servants. His cousin John Williamson becomes one. Men like Ralph Sadler, young lad he takes on, grows into this sort of trusted confidant and servant colleague, really, throughout the 1530s. So it's it's getting busier and busier, this house. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's so interesting because I suppose the first thing, you know, when you think of Thomas Cromwell, it's probably probably not family man that pops into your head firstly. But as you say, he was very close to a lot of his extended family. So I think that's an interesting insight into him. And and I know because I've read a wonderful article that you wrote about the house that, that mentioned these two inventories of the house that are taken during Cromwell's tenancy. So I wanted to ask you, Nick, what insights do you think these offer us into... Cromwell's religious and aesthetic tastes at the time. Well, I probably firstly should say we're lucky to have a, you know, a decent inventory. It's not every house in London in the 1520s or 1530s that has a list of rooms and a list of list of the stuff in the house. So, you know, we're pretty lucky to have that. Yeah, There's a absolutely. couple of these couple of these inventories and it's maybe quite normal for um, a kind of efficient businessman who likes writing lists he likes bits of paper he likes filing his stuff away so you know he gets an inventory of his property done and the 1527 inventory or inventory it goes through the house room by room so you can kind of follow this the surveyor the man with his clipboard walking through the house and he kind of starts off at the kitchen wing at the front and then he turns left over a corridor passageway into a yard then he goes into the sort of front room called the parlor and he gradually the surveyor gradually works his way back to the back of the house and this is a the description makes clear it's a it's a substantial important you know townhouse worthy of an up-and-coming businessman of a kind of wealthy merchant you know he's not an aristocrat he hasn't got sort of gold and silver in every room but he's he's a man who likes he's a man who likes fine things Cromwell had lived in Italy for a bit and one of the interesting things is that he's got a couple of Italian paintings these are uh, he's got a t- paintings of current affairs he has a painting of the Battle of Pavia which took place in 1525 uh, between well it's kind of the French and the Spanish fighting over Italy, if that makes sense. And at this 1525 battle, the king of France, Francois I, gets captured. So it's a it's a bit like having, I'm just trying to think of the equivalent, it's like having sort of uh, up-to-date newspaper articles or something pinned to your wall. So he's got this Italian painting of the battle that's just happened up on his wall. So he's, he's interested in current affairs, and maybe he's having a little kind of wry smile every time he thinks of the French king being captured by the Spanish, I don't know. The inventory is also good on some of the kind of religious content of the house. Now, I think we think of Cromwell, and Cromwell was undoubtedly a a religious radical, a, a um, and what, what we'd call a Protestant by the end of his life, probably what they'd call in Tudor times an evangelical. But in the 1520s, he's, you know, he hasn't yet got to that radical Protestant stage. Maybe he's, maybe there's stuff going on in his head and he's thinking about his relationship with God. But on the outside, he's got traditional 
Catholic religious, what do we say, religious paraphernalia. For example, he's got a he's got a relic enclosed in glass or crystal. He's got a sort of replica souvenir model of a shrine of the three magi, the three kings, and this shrine was in uh, Cologne Cathedral. And probably Cromwell's been there and he's probably bought himself a kind of souvenir replica. He's got paintings of Jesus, of Mary, um, of saints. So, you know, this is not surprising. This is what we would expect of a wealthy, traditional Catholic gentleman in the 1520s, just that Maybe we don't see yet from this inventory, we don't see Cromwell as the radical Protestant, not yet. No, I found that quite fascinating to all those details, considering obviously what, what happened later on, and especially the relics was really interesting because, of course, he stripped you know all the abbeys of their relics, and it's interesting that he owned some himself. Very interesting. Do we know who, who lived around Cromwell at the time, who his neighbours were, I suppose? Well, this part of London, I'll just let's just try and describe. Austin Friars is named after this monastery, this friary, the Augustinian Friars. It's within the walled city of London, but it's right on the kind of northern edge of London. So it's close to the medieval city walls. Cromwell could probably walk out into fields and countryside in about, you know, three, four, five minutes. That particular area is, there's quite a few Italians in that area. It seems to be an area where Italian merchants like to stay. Uh, we know that Italian merchants are uh, actively kind of praying and worshipping in the friary, and there's probably Italian friars there, so, you know, they'd speak the language. And one of his neighbours, for example, is an Italian, a very wealthy Italian merchant called John uh, Cavalcanti, or Giovanni Cavalcanti in Italian. And there's a couple of other wealthy Italian merchants nearby. There's one named Antony or Antonio Vivaldi, very similar name to the musician of a couple of centuries later. So he's surrounded by sort of wealthy merchants, and a couple of, couple of them are definitely Italian uh, Catholic merchants. And Cromwell must, well, he seems to like these contacts with merchants who've got these links all over Europe and maybe well Cromwell himself has been in Italy and maybe he's kind of sort of inspired by having a next door neighbor of a wealthy Italian merchant who can mix and sell things to Henry VIII to the Pope to Cardinal Wolsey on the on the other side of uh, the road you know there's more ordinary neighbors too there's there's inns there's taverns there's you know other English merchants houses so this is a prosperous bit of London with large houses, but London isn't really kind of separated into rich and poor. There's, you know, there's alleys and there's backyards and there's tenements as well as the wealthy merchants' houses. So he's got a, he's got quite a mix of neighbours from rich to poor. Yeah, that's fascinating as well. So I think sometimes people are surprised to hear that Cromwell was actually a fluent Italian speaker. So I'm just picturing him now with his neighbours chatting in Italian <laughs> out the front about how their day's been and things like that. That's that's a good image, I think. Um, so at some point, complaining about the complaining yeah. about the English weather, perhaps. <laughs> Probably, I, 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 that's right. We can imagine. <laughs> So at some point, he actually decides to increase his holdings at Austin Friars, probably as he's you know, rising in prominence at court. So just how much additional land and property does he purchase or does he lease? Well, it seems to be in about uh, 1532. So he's been in Austin Friars for about 10 years. But by 1532, Cromwell is no longer this kind of you know, freelance businessman, he's he's moved up in the world, he's served and outlived his second or third master, Thomas Wolsey, Cardinal Wolsey, Wolsey's dead by now. So in 1532, he's got a new master and the, the new master is the King of England, Henry VIII. So at this point, 
Cromwell, he's not, he hasn't yet got really senior official role in name. He's not called yet the kind of principal secretary or master secretary, but in effect, he's he's certainly heading that way. And he's a pretty senior servant to Henry, helping Henry run the country. So I think by 1532, he just, his ambitions have increased. He, his, uh, you know, his 12, 13 bedroom, uh, moderate, moderately large townhouse is just, is not going to be enough in the coming years. So Cromwell just starts buying up properties. He buys, uh, he buys the lease on his rented house at Austin Friars. He buys the neighbour's house also from the Friary Monastery. And he starts buying the Italian neighbour's houses as well. He start, he buys Cavalcanti's house on one side, he buys Vivaldi's house on the other, and he, he builds up this pretty important property holding. By the mid-1530s, he's he owns at least, well, one hectare, two acres of land. Now, Two acres of land it doesn't sound much if you're, you know, if you're in the middle of the countryside, the English countryside, but two acres of land in the biggest city in England, one of the biggest cities in Europe, that's, that's quite a chunk of, you know, important medieval expensive real estate. So he spent 500, 550 pounds buying this. And he's now, you, we, I kind of imagine him in about 1535, walking up and down with his, uh, maybe with his new architect, sizing it up, thinking, well, you know, we could, we've got, we can do a 90 foot long, you know, mansion here, we can knock this one down, we can build out the back here, perhaps we could have a garden at the back. And you, we imagine him in about 1535, planning what to do with all these hodgepodge of houses he's bought. And so what does he end up doing? Tell us a little bit about the, the sort of building works and, and the, the house, I suppose, that he creates for himself there. Well, it's, it's a three or four year building program. By about June or summer 1535, he's, you know, he's bought his London acres. He's got the space to build. And he, the, we haven't got a full set of construction accounts, but Cromwell is a pretty efficient uh, administrator and or rather he's got by this point he's got senior staff who are pretty efficient administrators on his behalf and um, I'm jumping ahead now but when he's arrested in 1540 lots of his paperwork is confiscated so we do have a fair bit of evidence so by about June 1535 he's knocking down neighbouring buildings on the street frontage of Austin Friars and his men are digging foundation trenches. So he's definitely started work on his mansion. And over the next four years, he builds a, a pretty substantial new mansion, kind of 90 foot long frontage. I'm trying to think how to describe it. If you were looking above as a sort of bird's eye view, it's a bit like a giant letter E with kind of wings or like maybe rungs of a ladder going back from the street. So in between these rungs of the ladder, there's courtyards. So he's got at least uh, one, two, three, four, five ranges of buildings, at least three courtyards in the middle. On the frontage, it's three stories high, plus some little attic rooms for the, for the servants at the top. We're talking 40, 50, rooms of accommodation this is a, this is you know not quite a palace but it's a pretty substantial urban mansion probably largely built of brick if you'd walked down the frontage outside the old monastery of Austin Friars in about 1539 you'd be struck by well it's it's brick which is unusual it's a pretty modern material for London in the 1530s the other detail he's got which is 
uh, quite fun are these kind of uh, stuck on bay window towers on the front. We tend to call them aureal windows, which is the sort of posh word for bay windows which don't go down to the ground floor. These are kind of two-storey timber and glass towers which are kind of stuck onto the front and like protrude over the pavement if you like. So this would look like a, a modern, striking, you know, innovative house, completely different from the sort of, well, not quite black and white, but sort of dirty grey and pale grey houses of, you know, the timber frame houses all around. So this is a man who's interested in architecture. He's been to Italy, he's been to France, he's been round aristocrats' houses here and abroad. You know, he knows his stuff. He's been a kind of architectural project manager for Henry. So he he wants to do something not quite in the top tier of a aristocratic palace, because that would be a little bit presumptuous, but he wants to build himself a pretty fine, substantial, you know, top class, middle class up merchant's house here in London. Yeah, so he's clearly wanting to impress his guests, I think, with <laughs> the innovative design. And and is there a particular person that's in charge of the design? Or, or uh, there's probably a lot of people working on it, but do we know of anyone in particular? Well, there's one particular name that keeps cropping up. Um, unfortunately, in the accounts that I've read, he this name is listed as Sir John. Right. And I, I spent. I tried to think who on earth this Sir John is. It just seemed a bit strange to have a you know a Sir is a yes. is an indication of kind of uh, you know this is someone who's a knight. And I thought, well, you're not really going to have a knight doing your design work, supervising your kind of construction trenches out the front, are you? And I couldn't quite work it out. And then someone helped me out and said, well, maybe that Sir is actually SR. It's written SR. I'd thought thought it was the abbreviation for sir, it's probably in fact the abbreviation for signor. So this is a foreigner, Signor John. And then I thought, ah, in 1536, we have a, um, a John or Giovanni Portinari, who's an Italian artist, businessman, fixer, who's working for Cromwell. We know that this John or Giovanni Portinari is working on Cromwell's new house in Lewis in Sussex in 1536 and I checked the accounts and that's that's just when the work on the London house in Austin Friars kind of stops and I suddenly thought ah oh, it must be this John Giovanni Portinari. Now Portinari by the 1560s he's a bit more famous and he's working by then for Queen Elizabeth doing kind of military engineering and architecture works in Portsmouth and Berwick up in the north of England so he later on becomes a military architect but in the 1530s working for Cromwell he's doing domestic work and he's doing other stuff like a sort of uh, working on the set of a play or a, um, a mask, a kind of dance for Henry VIII. So he's a kind of, you know, freelance Italian designer uh, <laughs> architect. And, you know, it seems entirely plausible that Cromwell's going to employ a, you know, a fancy Italian to do his new house for him. Absolutely. And, and in terms of what the house looked like inside or the internal decoration, is there, do you, did you come across many records about that? Well, not quite as much as I'd hoped. We, I've, we talked earlier about the first house, you know, this yep. 1520s house, and there is an inventory for that. What I really wanted, of course, was an inventory for the, the 1530s house. Unfortunately, there isn't one. Cromwell kind of, well, he falls from political favour. There's the whole debacle of uh, he organises Henry's marriage to Anne of Cleves. And, you know, as we know, Henry doesn't really like Anne of Cleves and the marriage falls apart. And Cromwell's kind of political world falls apart and he's removed in a coup in April 1540. So 
he doesn't actually live at this new house for very long. He's only there for kind of six months or 12 months, unfortunately. And there, he doesn't have time to organise an inventory. So we don't know exactly what's in it. There, there's a couple of little details. There's an, there's an inventory of Henry VIII's stuff. And in that inventory of kind of 10 years later, some of the entries for Henry VIII's own possessions are kind of annotated, confiscated from uh, Thomas Cromwell's house. So we know... For example, there's some pretty fine bed linen in cloth of gold and other luxury materials, which Henry ended up with, which he'd confiscated from Cromwell's house in Austin Friars. So he's, he's got fine bed linen, we know that. He must have brought some of his nice Italian paintings with him. By 1539, you know, I don't he might have he might have left his... Uh, Catholic relic in the mother-in-law's bedroom and maybe the old house and maybe he didn't bring that with him to the new house. I don't know. But he would still have paintings and but in 1539 it would still be perfectly reasonable for a, even a kind of secret evangelical Protestant to have paintings on display of the Virgin Mary or of Jesus. Um, so I bet he's got a lot of painting. He must have a fair bit of tapestry as well. He's definitely got some fine quality silverware, a, little, a few little bits and bobs of that silverware end up in Henry VIII's stuff, so we know about that. But I'm, I'm slightly uh, hesitating because, you know, I would really like a nice yeah. inventory, a room-by-room -room description of the house, but it doesn't survive. What a pity. Or maybe it's hidden somewhere in some stately home in the cupboard somewhere or something like that. We can always live in hope. Now, so Cromwell's actually, while he's building that house in the in the 1530s, he's, he's working on a lot of other projects. He's got quite a few um, building projects on the go, different houses. So what happens to this house in Austin Friars and all these houses and property once he's executed? Okay, so in April 1540, Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, is clearly planning this you know, coup against his big rival, the uh, Thomas Cromwell, who's a rather irritating commoner uh, from Thomas uh, Howard's point of view. And Thomas Howard sends in the men to Thomas Cromwell's house and they basically confiscate the paperwork. They seal up the house and they start to remove the fine possessions from the house. It rather, may, maybe ironically, uh, by this point, pretty in 1540, Anne of Cleves famously is that the marriage to Henry is annulled, and someone has the bright idea, ah, oh, maybe we can use Cromwell's furniture as a kind of divorce present for Anne of Cleves. Excellent idea. And so some men are sent round to by now that executed Cromwell's house with some carts and they ship out some of the furniture and possessions as a kind of divorce present. I don't think that's a quite the correct Tudor <laughs> term, but what, <laughs> whatever you call it, a, a sort of a sweetener for Anne of Cleves to um, accept the annulment. So some of Cromwell's furniture ends up furnishing Anne of Cleves' new place. The possessions are confiscated by the crown, by Henry. Uh, Cromwell's a traitor and so by definition all his possessions end up uh, as confiscated by Henry. Cromwell does do a bit of a deal, you know, in the Tower of London, and he kind of admits his crimes, and he does the right thing, and signs the right pieces of paper. Doesn't, doesn't save his life, of course, but what it does do is enable his son Gregory Cromwell to continue and not be under suspicion. So Gregory Cromwell does inherit 
some of the possessions of Cromwell, but most of it ends up going to the crown. And it's worth quite a lot of money. So, for example, the house gets sold a year or two later to the Draper's Company. The Draper's Company is one of these kind of London, they're sometimes called livery companies, they're sometimes called guilds, they're a sort of trader's company of, you know, Draper's cloth makers. And they're a pretty wealthy organisation in London, and they buy Cromwell's house as their new company hall. And... Well, if it weren't for the Tower of, if it weren't for the Great Fire of London in 1666, maybe some of Cromwell's house would still survive today as Draper's Hall. Draper's Hall is still with us, but it's the it's the post 1666 Draper's Hall, unfortunately, not Cromwell's uh, Draper's Hall, if you like. So they uh, most of the London property ends up with the Drapers. Lots of Cromwell's other property just gets added to the you know the general accounts of <laughs> all yes. the stuff that Henry VIII has. Oh, what a pity that it doesn't survive, or at least a little bit. So if I know I love walking in the footsteps of the Tudors, and I know lots of our listeners do as well. So if we wanted to go and kind of be in the vicinity of where Cromwell's house was, where should we go? What do we need to do? Well, we'd have to physically or virtually get to London. We'd probably, <laughs> we'd want to be around what's now the Liverpool Street area. Liverpool Street isn't a, uh, it's not a Tudor name, but it's that, it's the area of Liverpool Street Station. It's now the city of London, uh, what's left of the kind of old walled bit of London. We'd be looking for Old Broad Street as a street or Throgmorton Avenue. And uh, there is a little street there still called Austin Friars. There's a, a rather nice church there called uh, the Dutch Church of Austin Friars. Uh, again, that was that was very nearly a part of the surviving medieval friary or monastery where Cromwell worked and would have prayed. Unfortunately, a uh, an incendiary bomb in 1940 put pay to that during the Second World War, and the 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 Dutch church that's there now is a is a 1950s church based built on the site of the medieval church but it's a fun area to walk around austin friars itself is this little kind of quite narrow passageway there's several other courts and passageways that kind of evoke medieval and tudor london there there is you know sadly very little of tudor and medieval london left so if you want to kind of walk in cromwell's footsteps go to throgmorton avenue austin friars and the dutch church if you want to kind of get a feel for Tudor London, you're probably better off going, it's about half a mile further to the west in the area of St. Bartholomew's, St. Bart's Priory. That's still got a few surviving Tudor and Elizabethan houses. And it's a it's a better to get a, you know, a, a feel for those kind of timber frame houses and narrow passageways and alleys and what's left of a great monastic church. So you take your pick, <laughs> go to one of those two places, I'd say. Yes, I think, I think I'm pretty sure I have been to St. Bartholomew's, um, but I need to add all those that you've just mentioned. I've written them down, so it's on my list next time I'm in London. Hopefully, hopefully next year, fingers and everything else crossed. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much. This has been so fascinating hearing about um, not just Cromwell, but his incredible house. I didn't realise it was so, yeah, so stately, really. But there's one more thing I ask all my guests at the end of the episode, and that is for a Tudor takeaway. So this is something for our listeners to go off and have a look at after the episode. Sometimes people suggest books, websites, movies. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? When I thought about this, I sort of shut my eyes and try, I tried to think of the first thing that came into my mind. And it may not be that original, but what came to me was one of the episodes of the BBC's version of Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall Chronicle. And it's one of the episodes which seems to be set in his London Austin Friars house. And there's this 
amazing scene when Mark Rylance, the actor playing Thomas Cromwell, is in this darkened room. It's lit by candlelight. So for a start, you know, not many modern TV shows have, <laughs> have, have candlelight lighting, do they? And there's this incredible sense of the sort of concentration of this great Tudor man in his study, lit by candlelight. You can kind of barely see him on the TV screen. And the sound is also amazing. I don't know who did the sound recording, but you hear Mark Rylance's amazing, quite soft, authoritative voice. And you hear the, the kind of creaks of the floorboards and the timber panels. And it just looks and sounds like Tudor London must have been and it's just really hard to get back to that so you know full marks to <laughs> I don't know the BBC and Hilary Mantel for kind of recreating that that that's that's what came to my mind. Oh, that sounds fabulous it's been a while since I've watched it and now after your description I'm quite desperate to see that scene actually <laughs> and I feel like Hilary Mantel's novels are you know, an exercise in time travel. And, and that little scene sounds like it is as well. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for talking Tudors with us. You're very welcome. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm -hmm.